Hi, my name is Ari Stein, and this is the 52 Insights Podcast. When we think of empathy, all sorts of gentle, effeminate imagery comes to mind. The Dalai Lama, animal lovers, or holding hands with your loved ones. But in fact, empathy remains a vital biological element in order for our species to survive. Unfortunately, many of us have forgotten how to cultivate this important instinct. Without empathy, it would be very hard to live any type of productive life. In fact, we need it in order to collaborate and understand others. There is said to be a dearth of compassion at the moment. All sorts of urgent discussions going on about the lack of empathy in the world. They use the word polarisation. What does it mean to show compassion or relate to someone else's feelings? This forms the intellectual engine behind the work of Enni Kokotomola, a new and talented Finnish artist, designer, based out of London, who's been causing quite a stir with her unique and unorthodox projects. Her goal is to bring people closer together through spontaneity and discussion. Working all over the world and with a range of tools, she's earned praise from many quarters for her unconventional approach, from reworking the interior environment of the Finnish parliament to creating controversial board games. What I love most about Eni is the thoughtfulness behind what she does, a commitment to raising consciousness through art, making us think hard about our private and public spaces, and the rules we embed in our daily lives. We need to think how a lot of this needs a serious reconfiguration. In a world where your echo chamber is now de rigueur, we need artists and practitioners like Eni to show us a new brave world where meaningful exchanges are encouraged. Depending on what offends you, there is language in this episode. Here is my chat with artist designer Eni Kokotomola. Eni, welcome to the 52 Insights podcast. Thank you so much. It's it's a joy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so it's so great to um, to meet you virtually. Although that's probably not the most empathic way to start it. I'd love to probably meet you more in person. Um, I guess where the where I wanted to start with all this is, you know, empathy is 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 a hugely important topic. Um, and um, from what I understand, you call yourself the world's first um, empathy designer. Is that correct? Indeed. I'm, I'm an empathy designer and artist. Right. Well, so, so from what I understand, um, you've coined this, this term or, or explored it, in, you want to explore it in some way, which is what you think of as a global empathy deficit um, or as you've, you nicely phrased, the globalization of indifference. So maybe we should start with the problem rather than the solution. Um, and let's kind of explore like what you think the globalization of indifference actually means, if you can unpack that for us. Sounds great. Well, as a designer, I think starting with a problem is, is always a, a good way to go. Um, firstly, I have to say, I can't take credit for the globalization of indifference. That was actually Pope Francis who, who coined that term. So <laughs> let's, let's give credit where credit is due. But uh, as, as you mentioned already, the empathy deficit is, is really I would say, uh, a sort of a growing concept. It's something that's been talked about by everyone from Barack Obama to Pope Francis, who I, who I recently mentioned. Um, and I feel like it's, some, it's, a, it's an issue that is increasingly penetrating our 
consciousness. Um, I, I fundamentally believe it's, it's one of the biggest emergencies of our time. I think it underpins a lot of the symptomatic issues that we're seeing in our society and in our community around the sort of growing um, divides that we are facing, whether we're talking here in the UK where I'm based or, or more globally. Um, but fundamentally, the empathy deficit it is about the sort of growing lack of empathic concern and perspective taking. So it, it's really about these issues that we have in, in not being able to understand where each other are coming from, um, what each other are thinking or feeling or what our experiences might be. So fundamentally, um, research supports this as well. Um, there's there's a, an ongoing long research study, for example, from North America that measures empathic abilities amongst um, college students every year. They've been doing this study since the late 1950s and the measurements have taken an incredible deep dive in the last couple of decades. Um, you know, this is just one of the, the sort of more scientific uh examples that, that really proves the fact that we we have less understanding of each other than ever before. What did it actually find? So it measures um, what we broadly call perspective taking and empathic concern. So this ability to be able to understand someone else's experience or their thoughts, to be able to literally put, put yourself in someone else's position. So it looks at um, arguments or statements from different points of view. Um, and they've found, uh, I believe, a nearly 50% decline in the college students' abilities to um, undertake these, these actions or these ways of thinking, these processes um, in the last couple of decades, which is obviously very concerning. So a 50% decline over the last few decades. Yes. What do they attribute that to? Well, it's a good question. I think there are a variety of hypotheses. Um, you know, this to be to be clear, this is a study from North America, so it is a Western study, and and that's something that's quite important to point out. Actually, most empathy research comes from North America, from Europe, from Western cultures. So that's something that that really, I would say, um, directs our understanding of empathy, and and I think it's important to understand because. Traditionally, I would say Western cultures are, are much, much more individualistic um, and less built on, on collectiveness. Um, so that's something that I think is important to take into account because I think often the criticism of empathy comes from this question of whether it's a, something that we can actually scale to larger groups or, or to more collective environments. Um, and th yeah, I would say that's very much directed by the, the sort of context of, of, of the research. There's, there's amazing studies as well from, from more um, traditionally Eastern um, cultures. Specifically, there, there's um, a study that I often refer to from, um, from um, South Pacific communities that, that looks at how empathy can actually function in a much larger, wider yeah. collective sense. So, you know, these are just some of the headlines of, of the debate surrounding empathy. It's a yeah. much debated concept and topic. I understand. And that's kind of where I want to dig in a little bit more. Um, I struggle with the word empathy. Mm. Um, and only because like I myself understand what empathy is, or at least I feel like I understand what empathy is but I don't espouse to use it and deliver it every day. I hope 
to develop it internally as a byproduct of some of the practices that I hope to work on, whatever contemplative practice that is. I've been meditating for many years, so I don't go out to the world going, I'm going to be empathic <laughs> today or I'm going to be empathetic. I, I believe that's kind of that's the wrong way to, to go about it. And I think cultivating some kind of um, practice or, or, or approach Empathy could be the bright product of that. Now, where I get really lost with is empathy feels like a woo-woo word. <laughs> and um, I did an interview with this really famous neuroscientist recently called Lisa Feldman Barrett. You might know yes. her. And she's actually famous for saying, A, that there's no such thing as emotions. There's only biochemical interpretations. And B, all cultures um communicate in different ways. So what empathy is to one culture might be empathy to a different culture. In fact, in a famous TED Talk, she uses the the colourful example of a particular grimace in one culture might not be a grimace at all. So anger can't even be agreed upon. So what is empathy in your your opinion? Great question. I'm I'm glad we're starting here. So in in the context of my own work, which which always comes from an art and design perspective, I I talk about empathy as as the way of understanding someone else's experience or perspective. And in some cases, being able to actually feel what they feel or adopt their emotional state. thinking about it from a more sort of academic or scientific perspective um, again as, as you referred to already empathy actually doesn't have one shared definition so scientists and academics are still debating the definition of empathy and and as you mentioned I think the word in itself I would say in many cases has become quite problematic but for me fundamentally it is about this process, this constant ongoing process um, that never really ends of, of trying to understand where someone else is coming from. And I would dare to say that that is something that is very universal um, across cultures, across languages. However, we may define the word empathy, but that process of, of trying to and needing to understand uh, where someone else is coming from is universal and universally important. Um, you know, I think empathy as as a as a more sort of psychological process can be divided into two different types of empathy. So um, I often talk about um, cognitive empathy, which is the more common, more everyday form of empathy, which is more about intellectually being able to understand someone else and and their perspective or their point of view. Um, and that's something I would say we, we probably practice much more often um, in our everyday interactions and, and our lives. Um, we also talk about emotional empathy, which is the, the more extreme form of empathy, I would say, where where you actually adopt someone else's emotional state, where you where you feel what someone else might feel. And I think that's actually where often we we might get confused because when we do think about empathy, I think we often just think about that form of emotional empathy, which I would say is, is in my experience, a bit rarer. It's not something that we necessarily practice quite as often. And and it's also something I think we need to be at Mm. times careful of because emotional empathy can, can quite easily lead to empathy fatigue or over empathy as well. So especially if you're a highly empathic person, like, like many of us are. Yeah, it's funny you, you you finished on that note because I was going to bring up the 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 
the psychologist Paul Bloom, who who makes an argument against empathy and what he calls rational compassion. I was looking at his work yesterday preparing for this discussion and I knew his work and every time he says against empathy, I get angry. I know. Well, he is provoking deliberately, isn't he? (laughs) He is. And he's a troublemaker. Very cleverly, He's trying to make the point, which is fair enough, which is, by over-empathizing, you can actually elicit anger. That's one of the examples he uses. Or in action. Um, which, or yeah. in action, exactly. So what he likes to say is we should cultivate rational compassion, which is essentially the same thing. So, again, empathy gets, um, you know, misinterpreted in, in a number of ways. Absolutely. You said um, what I'm really interested in is you, you, you um, trained as a former classical archaeologist and um, and an ancient historian. I think you said that you um, were at Oxford for four years. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so I, I I did my undergraduate um, degree in classical archaeology and ancient history, which um, you know is is a is a different starting point to what I do now. But actually, it isn't as contradictory as it might look on paper. I couldn't think of a more appropriate background to study empathy than to study past cultures oh, and the you. remains of cultures. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about um, memories, remnants, past civilizations, and how that thread informs your work? Oh, absolutely. For me, it probably comes down to this inherent curiosity that I really always had into, into people and how we behave, how we think, how we feel, and, and why we do the things that we do and and really starting at the foundations of of well in this case western civilization where so many of the the systems that we still use today that we still form our lives within or around actually stem from this time so i was primarily studying um, ancient greece ancient rome um, egypt persia really the the entire sort of classical period um uh, and and um you know the, the the history both in in form of of original written source texts but also material evidence so my my uh degree was was unique in the way that it combined both archaeological evidence as well as written evidence and i would say to be honest i think this sort of approach of of research and investigation and, and really trying to understand um where our behaviours come from, where the way we interact with each other really stems from. And then primarily, I would say that the systems that really govern our lives, um, where they they were founded, why, by whom, yeah. how, that that is where, where really it started for me, but it's, it's still such a core cool part of my work because I, yeah. I really do tend to approach design from a more systemic perspective. So having this grounding... It has has been invaluable. And to be honest, I think whether we find it um, hopeful or depressing, the truth is that that very little in, in how we behave and act has, has changed in these thousands of years. You know, I think the tools and the mediums we might use, those have evolved, but actually what we do hasn't changed very much or what we need or what we want. Yeah, I'd like to kind of dig into that a little bit more. It seems it's a real source um, or a a real point of contention at the moment. There is a lot of, you know, bodies of research, reams of research um, and thinkers that that conclude that, you know, the world has gotten infinitely better Mm -hmm. and that, you know, um, the state 
of our civilization has improved immensely from, you know, um, the way that we treat each other um, to the circumstances around healthcare. And, you know, you only have to peel back the layers and, go, and to, to another time where, you know, we were brutals. And you say we want the same things, but, you know, at some point I'd, I'd potentially argue that we potentially don't want the same things in a way. I mean, I would say that violence has always been a part of our culture and now I think the way that we look at the world has potentially softened and um, I'd like to know how, how you think when you look back at past civilizations and cultures, the contrast there between, um, you know, how we treat each other. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. I, I would say... You know, I, I do agree with you in, in, in the context that you talked about. You know, obviously the realities of our lives have changed immensely um, and in, in the sense of, of what we need to do now for survival, obviously depending on how privileged you are and where in the world you might have been born, what your everyday reality is like, that obviously varies greatly. Um, but in, in terms of the sort of time and energy and effort that we're now using for survival, that that has has gone down in, in our evolution and in, and, and in the history, the period of history that we were talking about. So in that sense, certainly not not everywhere in the world, but in, in many parts, we've moved much higher up in, in sort of Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs, if we think about it. Um, and I guess thinking about it from the perspective of my work and, and empathy, really for me, it comes down to this need for human connection, for, for finding meaning in each other, the relationships that we form. Those are some of the things that I feel inherently really haven't changed. Yeah. When we're talking about the deficit of empathy, which is what we started on, I'm thinking of initially, you know, seismic polarizing events, you know, like Brexit the refugee crisis, you know, COVID, it can push people um, to, to, re- to become <clears throat> more reclusive um, with their empathy or it can push people outwards. We've seen that time and time again, especially over the last few years. What do those kind of events tend to do from, from your kind of macro perspective on empathy? Yes. Oh, it's all cyclical, isn't it? It's it's interesting when when you look at look at um, you know whether it's the classical period and the history since then. All of these things come come back around. Um, I think what we often see, and we're certainly in one of those periods right now, um, in in these moments of of great polarization and, and division, um, we do tend to group more with people who are like-minded who are similar to us and and this is a I think a really important point to be made about empathy as well it's much easier for us to empathize with people who are like us you know biologically that's how we're pre-programmed we naturally empathize with people who are similar to us who look like us who sound like us and often in those cases think in similar ways Um, so I would say we're we're certainly in these more um, arguably more protectionist moments in our history right now um, and we're seeking shelter um, with people who are um, have have things in common with us um, and that as I said that is really sort of one of the foundations yeah. of empathy however and this is again going back to my my practice as, yeah. a, as an empathy designer and artist this is really where I feel my work comes in because it is possible for us 
to consciously learn, to practice, to broaden our empathy, to to extend our empathic yeah. abilities, what I call as, as flows of empathy yeah. and the directions of them. But what I really struggle with, um, and sorry to interject, but I think this is <laughs> super, super important. I'm thinking about this larger idea, with this, which is empathy in the face of turbulence. And so, you know, I'm trying to think of the evolutionary aspect of empathy in the face of turbulence. It's very rare. I mean, we saw this in World War II. Hardly any countries wanted to help or turned away. We know that now. I'm just trying to figure out how we cultivate empathy in the face of turbulence because your initial instinct as a person or a group is to hide from trouble. And so to come out of the cave, so to speak, and to really um, tap someone on the shoulder or to help them almost feels like an impossible task. Um, So I'm just thinking about that's how nationalism is bred in that case. How do we protect the people around us? How do I protect myself? So empathy in the face of turbulence. Again, I'm going to bring it back down to design and art because I feel like a lot of these are starting to become really interesting challenges for design as well. How do we how do we actually bring this this need or I guess this importance of of empathy and and broadening our sort of understanding from the individual to a more bigger collective sense into the ways in which our societies operate. So going back to what I was saying earlier around this more systemic approach, I absolutely agree with you. You know, our, none, of, none of the systems or the services that, that govern our lives are really designed or created or built in ways that, that in any way encourage us to empathise or to, I would say, foster these more deeper, emotionally what, meaningful connections with each other. What part um, of the system, though? Well, which system, <laughs> which which context? Um, um, so, you know, I, I think we could we could talk about specific examples there. But I guess going back to your point about this mm. this notion of empathy in, in turbulent times, I would say pretty much everything in our society discourages empathy. Currently, we, I don't think there is much that that really fosters empathy or or encourages us to to look beyond ourselves or look beyond our sort of immediate surrounding. Um, And I I would strongly argue um, that that is absolutely what we need. You know, empathy is the foundation for all collaboration and cooperation. Yeah. I want to kind of get to the design element um, because you do some amazing work. Let's just throw out a hypothetical for you, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) Tell Um, me. Let's throw out a hypothetical. You have been appointed the city planner or the urban designer of a city, a city (laughs) particularly affected by a lack of empathy. Um, You and me both kind of have touch points in Scandinavia, so maybe we should avoid them because they always end up on the top (laughs) of of the happiness list. So um, (laughs) Scandinavia and Finland. But, you know, if we could think of a particular city in the world, I don't want to name names, and you were appointed um, someone who could kind of, you know, tweak or um, augment s- some of the things in the city to encourage empathy. What would those things be? Oh, where to begin? Well, I'm I'm going to go back to my my empathy process and, and methodology, because as I as I've kept kind of stressing during this conversation, I'm a designer and an artist, and that's always my 
starting point. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a politician, even though I often collaborate with with all of these people. So so I I always start from from the design and and the art. Um, What I've done is I've created a a methodology, a design for empathy methodology that really um, looks at empathy as an outcome of design instead of only using empathy as a part of the design process, which is something that we're much more familiar with. So really the aim is to going back to your your brief to to foster empathy in the designs that we create in the spaces in the contexts whether they're whether we're talking about larger systems or services or or products um and really this methodology that I've created it it sort of focuses on four areas of culture the the way I describe them Um, and this would be where I would start so if, if you gave me a brief to to look at how to redesign a a city or, or um, you know, a part of a city, um, the four elements I would start with are the spaces. So literally the physical space and, and how the space currently may or may not foster connection. So, you know, I think many of us are familiar with, with um, concepts such as hostile architecture. This is something that is very common now in city centres where the division of public and private space is very ambiguous. Um, We actually, especially in London where I live, we have a lot of private public space, privately owned space that is still publicly accessible, but the the boundaries and limitations and the rules of that are very unclear. So physical space is absolutely the first starting point. Um, How could we design more space for actually encountering people who are different from us to spend time with other people to to connect with other people I think what's happened over the last decades is that most common commonly shared space now is commercial space there are not many spaces where people can now gather without having to spend money or buy alcohol if you think about it they tend to be either restaurants or pubs or bars or shopping centres, shops. You know, there are a few public libraries left, few community centres left, but those are are spaces that have been and and still are in decline. So this notion of physical space, do we actually have space for empathy and connection, I think is a really important question. I've worked with the Finnish parliament in the past, and and you could look at the parliament as a microcosm and, and ask whether there's space there for empathy and, and connection, um, and I would argue there really isn't. Um, so space would be one of the first starting points. Um, the second area that I that I look at um, as an element of culture is um, rules. Um, I mentioned already these rules around public and private space, but I'm, I'm really interested in the unspoken, unwritten rules that really govern how we behave and how we interact with each other. So I'd be really interested in in understanding in this hypothetical city, what are some of the the unspoken rules, the the social and cultural norms that really dictate how we relate to each other? It's so interesting you say that because I want to understand a little bit more because you, from what I know about your background, you worked in agencies. (laughs) I did. So you worked for the devil. Um, (laughs) Um, well. <laughs> so what I find interesting about agencies is um, I want to understand a little bit more that you've worked in so many different departments of culture, so you have a very holistic overview of what empathy could be or should be. Corporations 
and its associated tentacles, I think, do everything they can to reduce the amount of empathy, unless it's to make you buy something or to encourage a type of consumerism, empathy to buy, which almost creates a type of um, hyper-individualism. I want that. That is me. It's not us, but it's me. So um, I want to understand what you learnt there, which kind of led you to leave. I'm not saying you left because of that, but what you learnt from that to encourage a different type of thinking. Ah, oh, goodness, how much time do we have? <laughs> well, as, as you mentioned already, so my background is, is very varied, uh, both in terms of the, the kind of context that I've, I've worked within, but also to kind of emphasise, I've, I've done work all over the world and I continue to. So I, I would say there is this sort of, um, I have definitely the benefit of, of a sort of multicultural understanding of, of empathy. And that's something that I continue to grow and, and develop. In terms of my background in, in agency, so I worked as a brand strategist for five years before I set up my own studio. Um, so I worked worked here in London for, for some big, big global agencies. Um, I, I always had my art practice on the side and, and eventually made a big leap to, to focus on that full time. But I think this foundation in strategy and, and this approach to research and human behavior is, is something that, you know, didn't start there. It, it arguably started in classical archaeology and ancient history, but, but was then further formed and evolved in, in agency life and now is a really big part of what I do. But in terms of, I, I would say, the kind of culture and context of, of advertising, I never really felt at home there. And even though I was fortunate to work on projects that you know, didn't just have have commercial aims. I got to work with some not with some charities and nonprofits, etc. I think fundamentally, still, um, I'm I'm too much of an idealist to to have made that my home, which is absolutely one of the reasons I left. I, I really wanted to have what I would say personally, from my perspective, a, a more positive contribution <laughs> to the world. That's a nice way of putting it, though. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so diplomatic. <laughs> well, look, I and what I love about what you said about kind of how corporations and organizations function. Like I, I, I now collaborate with a lot of different institutions as well. And what's really interesting, what I encounter across the board, you know, whether this is in the UK or Finland or other places, whether we're talking about. Uh, public or private sector collaborators, what really comes through in, in, in all these projects is that people understand the value of empathy. They want it, but they don't have time for it. That's the thing that I always, always come back to is that whether it's doing empathy training or, or kind of longer collaborative projects, Everyone thinks, oh, this is this is great. This is what we need. This will transform how we work. But I just can't do it because I need to do X, Y, and Z, and this needs to be prioritized. So it is, it is very interesting what you said about how really those processes, ways of working, those cultures are not designed in any way to, to foster empathy. And, and that's something I, I, yeah, I really believe we need to change, whether that is within sort of public sector, yeah. governmental yeah. systems or, or in the private sector. 
I also think that empathy is a dangerous word for a lot of people. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, by encouraging more empathy, it puts a lot of people out of work. <laughs> because <laughs> what do you mean? What, what do I mean, you mean? Well, so so what I mean by that is, is um, you know, I think about the climate, and I think about you know, um, you know, be, being a vegetarian and stuff like that. You make different choices in your life when you're more empathic. You look at the um, distressed supply chain of, um, you know, eating animals, and I made a very conscious decision. I didn't want to be part of that. Um, you, you think about the climate and how it's in distress as well. Um, so I think about, you know, we would be a very different population globally if empathy was a hard solid piece of, you know, your developmental curriculum. But then I also think that it's a dangerous word because, as you said, empathy, um, you know, is a part, uh, you know, people don't have time for it. But that's just another way of saying, you know, we profit off people not having empathy because if you really look at the way the world is, you know, there's so much exploitation that if you really kind of tuned in you know, you'd make some very different choices. So I think that's what I mean by empathy being dangerous. I understand fully what you're saying. And I, I, would, I would build on it in the way that actually what you describe now is perception and that's the common perception. However, it's really important to know, and I'm going to go back to research, which I think in the context of discussing empathies is often, I find it really important to come back to some of the some of the, the facts and the stats that we have is that there is emerging research looking at empathy in, in more sort of corporate cultures. And from that, we know that co companies with more empathic cultures, more empathic leaderships are not only better places to work where people are happier, mm. but actually they're financially more profitable. And this is, I think, where it comes down to is Empathy can't just be a nice-to-have soft skill, which is how we currently see it and how we currently market it. And this is something I have to say I feel really strongly about. I think the current language around empathy even I find very problematic. We talk about it as a very feminine, soft, warm and fuzzy emotion. Um, now, none of those things in themselves are yeah. bad. Actually, all of those things are very positive. Yeah, but I think in this totally. context, we use that language to really disregard and bypass what I would call the, the radical power yeah. of empathy. And that's what I want to tap into and I tap into with my work. Um, and, and coming back to what we were talking about in a more corporate setting, until we stop seeing yeah. empathy as a soft skill, many companies now offer empathy training, this kind of more emotional intelligence, soft skill training, Yes, it's a step in the right direction, but it still doesn't look at the core of the problem because, as I said earlier, it still puts the weight on the worker, the employee, the individual to find ways to be more empathic in that every day that's been designed for them to not have empathy. Yeah, no, so totally. totally. It does, it's not going to make a difference. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Well, let's talk about your work a little bit. Um, what is the be a cunt game? <laughs> I knew you were going to start with this. So Be a Cunt is a role-playing card game um, that's designed to open up conversations about sexual harassment. Um, so this is, a, this is an ongoing project that first started in late 2016, if we can think that far back. So before the explosion of Me Too, before 
before some of the the big big changes that we've started seeing in our culture. But really, it was originally targeted at, at sort of young adults and teenagers to try and start challenging this culture of silence and, and break some of the taboos around this topic, which is still something that we find very hard to talk about. Um, and really, the game aims to open up conversation. That's that's what it does. It's a starting point. It doesn't solve sexual harassment. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't. Um, fully change the issue it simply starts the conversation yeah I like I'm reminded of you know the way sexual harassment was described or 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 coined in a way um Fran Leibowitz the uh social commentator from New York she said every woman before me too was Eve Oh, that's, yeah, very, very well I think it's a brilliant way of of making you think about the problem. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, I think the context for the the game, you know, it it started in the UK and now actually there's a a UK-English version and there's also a Finnish version in Finnish language. But um, it really started from, from some shocking statistics that I read about how how frequently young women specifically experience sexual harassment at school. Um, And this was against the backdrop where the curriculum in the UK around sexual health and gender was over 20 years old. So it was written in a time pre-social media, pre-mobile phones, pre-things like revenge porn, which are such huge issues these days. And the, the idea with the game was really to, as I mentioned, to try and break the taboos around this issue because it's not something that, um, according to my research, young people talk about at school, at home, or often not even amongst their friends. I think this is luckily now starting to change because of the the evolution we've seen in the last couple of years. But when I first started in 2016, you know, the research I was doing with people was was harrowing. Um, And the idea with the game was really to, to try and tackle it from a very different perspective. So building on, on the success of, of some of these very provocative board games and games that, that were becoming very popular at the time, I thought, well, what, what if we could actually create a context where a fun, seemingly innocent situation of, of playing a fun game with friends could actually have a deeper meaning and a purpose? So that's really where the game comes from. But I think the most important thing about it and why it has the impact that it does and why it, it is powerful when you play it is that the, the game is built around a simple sort of mechanism of, of situations and responses and everything in the game, every situation, every word, all the language is based on people's yeah. real experiences. So it all stems from, from real research, word for word. And do I have this right? The winner is... Um the one who is the worst sexual harasser or? Yes, yes. So the game basically puts you in the position of the harasser. So the idea is that that you're saying things and behaving in ways that you would never imagine doing so or would want to. And and that's really what what breaks the, the taboo and leads to very, very rich and often quite tough conversation. Yeah, and tough t- tough conversations are, are what we need right now. What about um, another project I, I'd be interested to know about, um, the Echo Chamber? 
Oh, the empathy echo chamber. So this is this is a very topical project, actually. It was just announced this week. So I'm, I'm going to be representing Finland at the London Design Biennale this summer with that piece. So I'm actually working on an updated updated version of it. Um, the empathy echo chamber is, is an installation and it really builds on this notion. It aims to challenge the, the echo chambers that we increasingly live in. And I would say arguably... Well, since the first time I, I staged the installation, which was early 2020, right before the pandemic, in the years since then, I think our echo chambers have only grown. I think it's the first time ever where we can really live in a world, in a space that is curated completely by us and, and we can have our own opinions and and thoughts and and what we know already what we feel already what we think already reflected back to us so the empathy echo chamber really reframes that um, and asks what if these echo chambers could actually become positive spaces of exchange with other people so instead of it being about you and what you know and think it could actually be a moment where you you have an important meaningful um, exchange with someone else so that's what installation does it invites two people to step inside two people who don't know each other um, and then through a series of prompts it basically um, sets the scene for a moment of connection or disconnection it depends on on the people who step inside yeah and so um, I'm interested to know if you've had any um, just across all your work you've done quite a few projects any kind of um, out-of-the-box um, epiphanies or responses um, from people in the work? Oh, it varies hugely. I, I, I would say yes, sometimes they do happen, although they are more rare. Um, I think often I, what I tend to do is I approach my work as, as more about laying sort of planting seeds often what I see in, in participants and, and people who've taken part in projects is that it's really something that grows over time mm. um, it's really not about forcing empathy or forcing connection it's not about in any way trying to manufacture it or, or push people to do it what I really aim to do through all the work is is create a moment create a space or create an exchange where it may or may not happen. And often it happens much later on. Um, the actual experience may become a little seed that maybe grows later on. So I often get contacted by people who've um, experienced a piece or taken part, you know, years later, and they'll reach out and they'll say, there was something then that I didn't fully understand, but now this has happened and it's come back to me. And it's do you given get those me I do, I do. Um, and, and to be honest, I have to say that to me is more meaningful than, than necessarily having a very strong reaction in the moment. Yeah. I, I often think that's not realistic. That's not how we, we, we work as people, but, but actually being able to plant something that then may or may not grow in the future is, is really what it's, what it's all about. So I'm, I'm in no way expecting that that one, one experience in an art installation is going to change your life. But what I do believe it can do is it can open your, your eyes, it can open your heart, it can open your mind into a different way of, of seeing someone else or yeah. seeing yourself. Yeah. Well, you know, you're doing the good work, Annie, and um, I'm reminded, you know, of like, <laughs> you know, Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage. 
So you can do with it what you will, and, and you're you're really doing the most um, important work right now. I think for me, I've been unbelievably let down by technology, and I thought that you talk about space. I mean, I thought all the kind of invisible space that was between us um, would would you know that problem would be solved by technology, and that social media would bring us closer together. I think that utopian idealistic thinking was, you know, inherent in a lot of people. Um, those adopters early on thought 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 that was going to happen and I've been unbelievably kind of let down by it. So I don't know where we go to with, with that and that's certainly for another discussion, not this one. And I hope that the people designing the next generation of technology, um, user interface, um, I don't just mean technology, but just generally understand the severe and very dangerous and urgent problems that we face geopolitically as well. I just think as you are a proponent of, of, of empathy, perhaps you can think of more novel and um, unconventional ways to get people talking about that. So, so thank you. Thank you very much. That was beautifully said. What a great way to finish. Thanks for having me. Take care of yourself, Annie. Bye. You've been listening to the 52 Insights podcast. I'm Ari Stein. Thanks to Portico Quartet for their track Endless and thanks to Joel Stein of Glass Maps for producing this podcast. Sign up to the 52 Insights newsletter and subscribe to my podcast channel to get access to my latest interviews with extraordinary people.